It is a privilege to be able to be with you all today and uh, to be able to be back. If, uh, you remember I was here in uh, December. We were here first weekend, I think it was, in December. And so just great to be able to be with you all again. It's been great to be able to kind of journey with the, uh, the leadership of Dale Bible Church over the last uh, several months and uh, just to see what God is doing and to see how God is working with them and uh, working in this church as well. And so it's a, it's a privilege to be able to be here. Uh, we love and appreciate uh, Pastor Justin, and uh, we love his, uh, his passion, his zeal for Christ, uh, his passion and zeal for Dale Bible Church and for the community around uh, this church. It's exciting to see uh, what God has done and how God is working there in his life and in this church and uh, so we're privileged and thrilled to be able to be here. Keith Fleming is here with me as well. He's been here with me this weekend, and uh, so glad to have Keith uh, here. I'm going to keep removing all of the things up here that I'm easily distracted when I preach, so I have to like remove all, all distractions. I don't know where chalk came into the picture, but uh, I'm like, it's like one of those games. I was a youth pastor for a lot of years. You play these games like, you know, who has a paper clip in their pocket? We can like who has chalk on their pulpit? That's the game we could play. I don't know where they keep. Who has chalkboards anymore? Anyway, random, random things at Dale Bible Church. But it is great to be able to be with you all, and uh, we really do look forward to what God has for us today, and uh, grateful for that opportunity. We're going to be in the Book of Revelation this morning. I was originally going to preach something from the Book of Colossians, uh, but then Pastor Justin informed me he's getting ready to start Colossians. And so I know how it is. I was in pastoral ministry for 20 years, and, you, and it's not that you own the entire Bible, but you kind of like, you kind of get your sights set on something, and you're, you don't really want to infringe on that. And so I was more than happy to, to kind of reroute, and, and I firmly believe that God is the author of all things, and so clearly this is the message that he would have for us today. And so we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7. This is the church at Ephesus. This is part of the seven churches of Revelation, and uh, this, is a, this is part of the process of the Apostle John as he's communicating uh, through divine inspiration around these seven churches, speaking truth from God to them. These were specific churches, yet at the same time, they have relevance for us today. And so as we take a look at the book, or the church of Ephesus, there's some really important truths for us to glean from this. And a lot of similarities to things that we are experiencing in our world today and potentially in our church as well. So Revelation chapter 2 verse 1 says this, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise 
of God. Let's have a word of prayer as we begin this morning. Father, we are thankful to you for all that you have done for us. You're so good to us. You're so faithful to us. Father, I pray this morning that as we examine this particular section of Revelation and and these seven churches and the church at Ephesus, Father, may you help us to glean the truths in our own hearts and lives that need to be applied and practiced. Father, it's a sobering passage of Scripture to think about what you desire from us and what you are able to do in and through us and what you are able to do as a result of our failure to do what you have asked us to do. So, Father, I pray that you would give us clarity of mind and clarity of hearts this morning. And may you do a work in each of our hearts as you desire. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. This is part of, as we've mentioned, part of a series of churches, the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Maybe you've you've read a study on this or you've done some study on the different seven churches. Uh, this is the church at Ephesus. This is the church that uh, we see in the, in the description of the book of Ephesians. This is a, a church that would have had uh, a lot of influence and a city that would have had a lot of influence. And so the background of this is the seven churches and then this is the city, the city of Ephesus. The city itself, as we think through and process through this, is uh, Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor. It was, for all practical purposes, the hub of immorality in Asia Minor. If you wanted to experience anything, if you wanted to, 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 to have opportunity to live out your immoral life, then the city of Ephesus was for you. There was a temple of Artemis. It was called Diana, the temple of Diana to the Romans, but it could seat 24,000 people. And we see a description of the temple of Artemis in Acts chapter 19, verse 27. It was the home of thousands of priestesses and prostitutes who were, who were there to fulfill anyone's wishes. And this is how they expressed their worship. They would, men and women would flock to the temples to live out any kind of immoral lifestyle they could imagine fulfilling every wish they had. The temple was 450 feet long. It was 225 feet wide. It was 60 feet tall. It was considered to be by some one of the wonders of the world. The temple and all that it represented was, was something that, 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 that was to be defended in their minds at all costs. In fact, I want us to turn over to the book of Acts just for a brief minute. The book of Acts And this is going to give us some background into this particular temple. The book of Acts, chapter 19, starting in verse 21. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 21. Verse 21, it says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, And to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, 
brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is a remarkable scene that's playing out. Here is Paul and his companions as they're journeying on their missionary journeys in the book of Acts. And this is the description of what is transpiring. How do people feel about the temple of Artemis? Screaming, hollering for two hours straight. Great is the temple of Artemis of the Ephesians. They were celebrating and honoring and and clamoring to ensure that that this place was praised and honored and glorified. Yet this place was one of the most immoral places you could ever imagine. It's hard for us to kind of fathom how this all plays out. And it's hard for us to fathom how this all plays into reality. But the fact of the matter is this is exactly the same type of world that we exist in today. Oh, maybe not in Dale, Indiana, but if you remember, and it's gotten worse since then, but if you remember on January 21st, 2017, half a million women showed up in Washington, D.C. to protest for an entire day for one particular thing. They, they, they protested, they screamed, they hollered for one particular thing, and that was for the right to kill their own children. Around the world, another 1.5 million women joined them on that day. Two million women around the world protested in one day to be able to have the right to kill their own children. So when we read something out of the book of Acts chapter 19 like this for two hours in the theater of people crying out, great is the temple of Artemis, and and we we are fully engaged with the immorality of our life today, it's the same type of world that we live in. But that was what was facing the church at Ephesus. That was what was facing this church that John is communicating to in the book of Revelation chapter 2. And so it is into that context that we read this particular passage in Revelation chapter 2. We know in the context of the church, the history of the church, that the church is about 40 years old when John is writing 
this particular section of Revelation. The church was started by Priscilla and Aquila. We see that in Acts chapter 18, and Apollos also preached there. We see that as well in Acts chapter 18. And the church was bolstered by a massive evangelistic effort that we see preceding this text that we just read in Acts chapter 19. So this is the the great dilemma that is happening at Ephesus. Amongst the city of Ephesus is the great temple of Diana, the great temple of Artemis, of the city of Ephesians, that 24,000 people could fill, and all of the priestesses, and all the prostitutes, and all the immorality that went there. And amidst that environment is a church, a church that is trying to stand firm, a church that is trying to do what God has called them to do. Much like churches in America today, it's hard for us to even imagine that churches in America today are having some of the challenges and difficulties of taking stands against what is happening in our cities and around our country. But this is the background of the church at Ephesus. So then we move through this particular text here in Revelation. We, we move into verse 2. And We're told here, I know your works. Here's a commendation that uh, the uh, writer of Revelation is going to give. He's going to give a commendation to these people. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The writer here gives them four commendations. He gives them these commendations of, first of all, their labor. They are, they are commended for what they have done and how they have worked and how they have labored. In fact, the Greek word that's used here is the Greek word kopos, means, which means wearisome effort. I know Pastor Justin enjoys sports, at least I've heard that he enjoys sports, but he enjoys this football, he enjoys basketball, maybe some of you do as well. You know that if you played sports at all, you've played basketball, you've played football, you've played any kind of physical sport, you know that there's expressions like, let's leave it all on the field. Let's give 110%. Let's, let's, let's give it our all. Well, the church at Ephesus is being commended. That's what they had done. They had given their all. They had labored in such a way that they would be described as having wearisome effort. They weren't apathetic. They were faithful. They were workers. They were, they were laboring for the cause of Christ in the church. They worked hard physically, emotionally, mentally. But then they're commended, second of all, for their patience. He says, I know your works, your toil, and I know your patient endurance. This is the Greek word that means to remain under. In other words, amidst all of the difficulties that they were going through, they had been patient. They had remained under. They had had labored under. They were patient in their endurance. Under difficult situations, under difficult circumstances, in light of the temple of Artemis that was there, and surrounded by all the things that they were surrounded by, they were patient in their labors. 
the cultural pressures that they faced, the societal pressures that they faced, they hadn't given up. They had remained faithful to what God had called them to do. So they are, they're commended for their work. The church at Ephesus was laboring hard. They were, they were to the point of wearisome effort, and they were patiently remaining under all of the difficult circumstances that they were facing. But then they're commended, thirdly, for their intolerance of evil. He says there in verse 2, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. That's an amazing thing. They were in a situation. They were in a circumstance that was surrounding them with evil. And they're commended here. You haven't tolerated it. You haven't absorbed it. You haven't become part of the culture. You have stood firm. You you have stood fast. You've allowed yourself to stay focused on what God has called you to do. You have done a great job, church at Ephesus. You've worked hard. You've remained patient. And you haven't allowed the surrounding immorality to seep into the church. They're commended for this. In fact, they're also commended for this down in verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were, uh, this is a, a reference that here to the Nicolaitans is also referred to in other places, but it seems to have come from the early church father of Nicholas. And they were, they were, it was a heresy that was preached that led to immorality, it led to wickedness. Basically, it was an adoption of immoral behavior and immoral acts that would have combined into the church context. So John, through divine inspiration, is commending them. You guys have done well. You've, you've worked hard. You've remained patient under these difficult circumstances, and, and you've not been tolerant of evil. That's an amazing truth for these people to remember. They've done what God has called them to do amidst all of the challenges and all of the difficulties and amidst all of the things that they have done. And then he commends them, fourthly, for their examination of their leaders. Look back up in verse 2. Cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. They examined their leaders. One of the greatest issues that faces churches in America today is a failure to examine their leadership. In fact, it was Charles Spurgeon who said this the most suicidal act a church can commit is to compromise on leadership. We have churches today who are filled with leaders that if you've got a pulse and you've got warm blood flowing through you, we probably will use you because, well, we can't find anybody else. To Pastor Justin's point earlier of this faithful men ministry, this idea of saying how do we raise up men who are gifted and qualified and and validated and vetted to say are they godly leaders who God has called us to have as leaders for Dale Bible Church. The church of Ephesus was doing the exact same thing. They were testing those who called themselves apostles and and they were finding them to be false and, and this is all of the great things that they are doing. They took Paul's commendation and they took Paul's admonition to heart in the book of Ephesians when he talks about examining those who are going to be your leaders. 
And so the church at Ephesus, we would stop right here, and we'd say, this was a pretty significant church. In the midst of, of evil, in the midst of wickedness, in the midst of all of the social pressures and issues that they were facing, here is a church, and what were they doing? They were working their tails off. They were remaining patient under the difficult circumstances they had going on around them. They were not tolerating the evil that existed around them. They were not allowing that to absorb into the church. And they were examining their leaders. Like we would look at this and say, oh, this is like, oh, if we could just be this church. This is an amazing group of people from these four commendations. And they're commended there in verse 3. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. They are just doing all of the things that they're supposed to be doing. They're commended for those. But there comes a condemnation. And this is where things get a little tricky for us, at least for me. The condemnation that is going to come as they begin to look at this in verse 4. But I have this against you. I mean, right there, we'd have to stop and say, are, are you kidding me? You're going to have something wrong with this church? You're going to have something wrong with a church that, uh, that amidst the, the immorality of the city of Ephesus, amidst the immorality of the temple of Artemis, and the, in the backdrop of all of that going on, you're going to have a problem with these people? How could you have a problem with these people? Look what is said in verse 4. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So what had they done? They had abandoned, as Paul or as John records here, they had abandoned the love that they had at first. Amidst everything they did right. They worked hard, they remained faithful under difficult circumstances, they didn't tolerate evil, they were diligent to examine these false teachers, and yet God condemns them for not having the love they had at first. Well, what is that? Well, if we look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, this is the great commandment that's given to us. There's a couple of other passages that will allude to this same passage, but Matthew chapter 22 Verses 34 through 40, it says this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. Remember, this is in the context of Matthew 22. There's already been some other questions. The, the, the Pharisees asked him a question, and then the Sadducees asked him a question, and now the Pharisees are asking him a question. They're, they're all trying to trap Jesus here in Matthew. So verse 35, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. We're going we're gonna to get Jesus. We're going to tra- trap him. Verse 36, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second one is like it or equal to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets what did the lawyer wanted to, to get jesus to, to admit to what did what did this religious uh, 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 legal expert want jesus to concede he wanted to say well amidst all of the 10 commandments which one of them is the most important 
Which one is the greatest? Because if we could get Jesus to say, well, this one's actually better than these, or this one's more important than these, then we could trap him in this heresy. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't take the bait from this religious expert. Instead, he goes a, deep, a level deeper, and he says, listen, you want to know what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second one is just like it. Same equality, same level. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because out of that is going to hang all of the law and all of the prophets and all of the things that you're ever going to do is all going to hang on those two thoughts. Loving God and loving others. So we come back into Revelation chapter 2, and we're told there in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 4, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They had stopped loving God, and they had stopped loving others. See, but man, this was a, a great church. They, look at what they, I mean, they just got commended in the midst of Ephesus. That's a nasty city. In the midst of Ephesus, and, and they're, they're doing all of these things. They're, they're working hard, and they're, they're being patient, and they're not, they're not tolerating evil, and they're examining their leaders like that would be a remarkable church we would elevate and say, look at that church. And God says, yeah, I commend you for that, but I've got something against you. It's never a good thing when God says he has something against you. And here God says, this is what I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So what can we conclude? What do we gain from this? What, what do we conclude out of this particular section? We, we conclude this. The church at Ephesus was guilty of checking boxes. They were going through the motions. They had it all. They had all the programs you wanted to have. They had all the people showing up that you wanted to have. They had everybody, everybody was doing everything they were supposed to be doing. And God says, you know what, that's nice. But you fell out of love with me. You're just going through the motions. You're just checking the boxes. You're just going, and not, this is my weekly calendar. Sunday, I gotta do this. Check my boxes on Sunday. Monday, I'm going to have a different task. I'm going to check my boxes on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. And God says, yeah, you're in the midst of Ephesus in a nasty city with all the immorality that surrounds you. And yes, I'm going to commend you because you're, you're working hard and you're, you're remaining patient and you're being faithful and, and, and man, you're not tolerating evil and, and you're examining your leaders, but I've got a problem with you. And that problem I have with you is you don't actually love me anymore, nor do you love others the way you should. And all we're doing is going through the motions. This is what church is supposed to look like. We do this, we do this, we do this, we do this. And the church at Ephesus, in the midst of immorality, standing strong with these four commendations, and God still says, I've got something against you. But then it goes deeper. And this is the hardest of the churches for me to think about and to preach about because I really have some difficulty with how God responds to this. If I'm going to be completely honest, I look at this text and I'm like, I don't, God, I trust you, but I don't know about some of this stuff. Look at what he goes further. He says in verse five, remember therefore from where you have fallen, 
repent and do the works you did at first. Here's their consecration, we would call it, for lack of a better word. This is what they are supposed to be doing. Remember where you've been, repent of what you're doing wrong now, and return to your original practice. It's a three simple process. Remember your first love. There should be a time when you stop and look back as a church or as a Christian, you may say, no. Man, when I first got saved, I first trusted Christ, a passion and a love to know him and, and to, to be more like him and to grow in him and, and all of that zeal and all of that energy and all that passion. And uh, now I, you know what, I may not have that anymore. Now I'm just really frustrated because the boxes aren't being checked. And everyone knows this is what a Christian's supposed to do. And now I'm really frustrated because people aren't checking the boxes. God says, remember where you've been. Repent of what you're doing wrong and go back there. So coming to the realization, Church at Ephesus, come to the realization that it's not about checking the boxes. Yeah, it's great. We're thrilled that you are working hard, that you're remaining patient, that you're intolerant of evil, and that you're examining your leaders. Church of Ephesus, you're to be commended. That's great. That's good. But God says, I've got a problem with all of that because you've abandoned your first love. So what should you do? In our natural human state, we would say, well, just keep doing what you're doing, but try to do a little bit better in loving God. And God says, actually, no. Repent. Remember where you were, repent of where you are now, and go back to where you were. Fall in love with Jesus Christ. That's what is being preached. That is what is being communicated. So the consecration that is given to the church at Ephesus is this. Remember, verse 5, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. What were the works they did at first? They were in love with Jesus Christ. I've been in church since the day I was born. My parents, my dad was saved, fresh out of Vietnam. My mom was saved as a young girl. They started going to church. I was, I've been in church for 45 years, pretty much Sunday morning, Wednesday, all, like the whole thing. Grew up in a Christian school. I can tell you there are times where I struggle to just check the boxes and not actually be in love with Christ. It can happen to every one of us. And there may be some of you in this room who that's where you've been. You have done this routinely all your life, and it's just kind of become the thing you do. Show up, do this ministry. Show up, do this ministry. Have this program. Have this thing. This is what church is supposed to be. And God brings us to the church at Ephesus. He says, yeah, that's, that's great. I'm happy. I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you're doing some things. But I've got something against you. If you've abandoned your love you had for me, God says that's more important to me than all the programs and all the ministries and all the things you can do in a church. And so I struggle through Revelation 2, 1 through 7, because I'm like, man, God, isn't there some credit like, you know, I'm not the greatest student in the world. I'm always looking for extra credit. Like, God, isn't there some credit that gets put onto our accounts because of all the things we've done? And God says, ah, not really. I mean, I'll commend you for them. But this is what I want. This is the love I want you to have for me and for others. And then for me, this whole passage takes a turn for the worse. 
in verse 5, the end of verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And this is where it goes south for me, if I'm just going to be honest. Like, one of the hardest passages I have is Revelation 2, 1 through 7. Because I'm like, are you serious, God? What does it mean to remove your lampstand? We don't, you know, we're not like in the 1800s anymore where you've got, like, little lampstands and, you know, we're walking around with little wicks. and A lampstand, the reference here of the lampstand was talking about the light that was being cast out by the church. The light that was being cast into the community. The light that was coming out from believers who were walking in the light and and letting their light so shine before men so that others could see their good works and glorify their Father which is in heaven. And in the middle of the wicked and perverse city of Ephesus, you would think that God would want at all costs to keep a church there. Like in my mind, if I'm going to to put this together, I'm going to say, okay, if we're snuffing anybody out, we got to keep somebody in Ephesus. What would happen in the city of Ephesus if, if the church was taken away? And God says, that's not as much my concern as the fact that my people who are going through the motions and checking their boxes, they don't love me. They have fallen out of love with me. And God says, if you don't repent... If you don't turn back to where you were, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That is one of the harshest verses, I think, in the Bible. To think that God views a body of believers in such a way, in the midst of a wicked and perverse world, in the midst of a world where immorality reigns supreme, and God says, you know what? If you don't do what I ask you to do, I will remove your lampstand. I will remove your light. What does this show us about God? In my human nature, I may sit there and say, man, God, no wonder people have a problem with you. I mean, I'm a believer, and I've been a Christian since I was four years old and trusted Christ as my Savior, and here I am in 41 years of being a Christian, and I look at this and say, you know, I can handle some of the accusations about God and say, well, that, you know, those are just people that... But this one, are you serious? You're going to come to the church at Ephesus and threaten to remove their lampstand, shut them down because they have left their first love. And God says, yes, because God cares more about your relationship with him than he does any program or any ministry or any box you could ever check. And God does not need you to accomplish his work. That is the message he is giving to the church at Ephesus. You guys are doing a great job. You're working hard. You're patiently laboring. You're not not tolerating evil. You're examining your leaders. Great job, guys. But by the way, you've got an eviction notice on your front door because you've forgotten to love me like you used to. Our ministry deals with churches all around America and all around the world. Sometimes I wonder, like, what? why is that church, like, why is that church struggling? Why did that, that church not make it? And we try to come up with lots of different things. Well, you know, oh, it must have been this, or it must have been that, or it must have been whatever. We try to, we try to quantify or, or kind of 
to figure out why it happened. Maybe, just maybe, the reality is that church doesn't exist because those people have lost their first love. That God cares more about your relationship with him than about the boxes you check in church. I was in pastoral ministry for 20 years. I'm not going to say I've seen it all and heard it all, but I've seen a lot and heard a lot. And there are a lot of people in a lot of our churches in America who are simply checking boxes. And they have fallen out of love with Christ. Oh, they're doing a, a good work. Oh, they're, they're working hard. They're tired. They're, they're laboring. God says, you know what? The consequence is I will remove your lampstand. If we contextualize this as we close this morning, how does this fit for Dale Bible Church? And I don't know. Pastor Justin hasn't told me what to say or what to preach or anything. I don't know where anybody's at in this room. I know a handful of people. But let's contextualize this. Let's bring this to Dale Bible Church. Four thoughts. First of all, Dale Bible Church must ensure that Christ remains preeminent in this assembly. Everything we do is for the cause and the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. Second of all, Dale Bible Church must ensure that each generation loves Christ like the previous generation loved Christ. And maybe that's not even the best way to word that because that's assuming previous generations have loved Christ. But we need to continually pass on a love and a relationship with Jesus Christ with the next generation. Falling in love with Christ. Thirdly, Dale Bible Church must ensure that they are advancing the kingdom of Christ and not their own kingdom. It is not about Dale Bible Church. It's about Christ. And he is the head of this church. And so it's about making sure that we are advancing his cause, that we are promoting his cause. And then fourthly, Dale Bible Church must embrace the mercy and grace of Christ when they fail to love God and others as they should. Some of the nastiest people I have ever met in my life have been church members of mine. They've said some things that have left wounds deeper than a Band-Aid can cover. They've done things. They've hurt people. Why? Why do people lash out like that? Why do people lash out in anger and, and vitriol and all of the things that they do in our churches? Because at some point, somebody stopped checking the boxes they thought should be checked. And those people, and even people within this congregation, it's possible, have lost their love for Christ that they had. And it's easy for us to be defensive and say, well, you're going to tell, who are you? Come in here and tell us it's possible. We may have lost our love for Jesus Christ. Well, that was what happened to the church at Ephesus. That's what God is saying is happening. You may have lost your love you had for Jesus Christ. And I would go a step further. It may be because you never had a love for Jesus Christ, that you actually haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, to have a love for him, to lose that love. So as the church at Ephesus had to do, 
I mean, who's going to criticize the church at Ephesus? Who's going to criticize these people? God says, I'll criticize them. I'll take them to task. Woe to the church that God has to say, I have something against you. And woe to the church that God has to say, I am threatening to remove your lampstand. Like, this is serious stuff that is happening. A church that we would elevate. If this were in America and this were today, we would elevate. Oh, have you been to this church? What an amazing church. Look at all that they do. And God says, I don't, I don't need you. I don't care about what you do as much as I care about the fact that you love me with all your heart, soul, and mind and love others in the same way. That is what God desires for Dale Bible Church. It's exciting to see what is happening and the potential of things that can take place in this area. But the greater thing that is exciting is to know when a body of believers falls in love repeatedly with Jesus Christ and lives their life to advance his cause, that's an exciting thing to watch, to see God do a work in our hearts and lives. Revelation 2, 1 through 7 is literally one of the toughest sections of Scripture I can deal with because I look at this and say, ah, dude, I wouldn't do it that way. And God tells me, you know what, Dietz? I don't even care what you think. Because it's not about you. It's about him. The only thing you need to be worried about, am I falling in love with Jesus Christ more today than I did yesterday? And let me focus on that and loving others and being faithful in a relationship with him. If you have lost your first love because you never actually had it, then today would be a phenomenal day for you to say, you know what, I never actually had a love for Christ. Let me place my faith and trust in him as my savior for the great love he showed me. If that needs to happen, then today would be an awesome day for you to do that. What a great thing for us to think about the potential that exists in a place like Dale, Indiana. But what a tremendous thing to process that no matter how great, quote unquote, things may be, may we not lose our first love and may we not be guilty of checking boxes as we come to church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for your word this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us and guide us and direct us. We pray these things in your son's name.